Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 112, 1700 AD. Big problem and little problem. And I'm recording this same day as episode 111 and uh, 1101. Bronchitis is still there. I know it. Please uh, bear with my strange breathing. As we creep up carefully closer to the causes of that miracle that happened that one time, Mokir introduces us to the big problem and little problem of the causes of the miracle. The miracle for new listeners is the Industrial Revolution followed by the birth of modern economic growth. He credits McCloskey for this big question, little problem formulation, by the way, and we're following the Enlightened Economy by Joseph Mokier for this arc. The big problem is, quote, why did Western Europe succeed in doing something no society had ever done? That is, break through the confining negative feedback barriers that had kept the bulk of people who ever lived before 1800 at a level of poverty that is by now practically unknown in the West. Despite their formidable scientific and technological achievements in years past, neither the Ottoman world nor China nor even India came even close, unquote. I'd throw in Japan, which was also safe from invasion, also protected by seeming divine intervention with a strong segment of mechanically talented artisans with obviously all the potential in the world. There have been answers. Blaming the rest of the world's religions was one. For much of the 19th and 20th centuries, a race-based answer seemed obvious to many. If I can say so, the religious and racial analyses were interpolations of the gaps, not foundationally grounded propositions, and yet they persisted despite Adam Smith's clear scientific and coherent explanation. McCloskey would say that Smith, by limiting his scientific analysis to the virtue of prudence, left too much room for other explanations to coexist. So the German philosophers were able to lay out the foundations for progressivism and various other baleful ideas that continue to curse humanity to this day. The better answers to the big problem have still mainly been pretty soft. Culture, which is fuzzy, Socio-behavioral, which is also German and leaves you needing to condemn the other civilizations. And then there are society, empire, and politics. Um, I've mentioned before that the sort of state-of-the-art thinking today is the kind of random impact of the Catholic Church spending a thousand years, roughly from 500 to 1500, destroying kin-intensive institutions for their own sake, for the sake of the Catholic Church, so that people would donate more land to them, producing a psychologically different type of people in the dimensions of individuality and rationality. That's the anthropological view, and then a more purely historian viewpoint is that the papal policy of gaining control over the appointment of bishops in Germany and Italy, the investiture crisis of the late 11th century, along with the Cluniac reform movement against simony and sex, led to a policy of simultaneously weakening the empire and strengthening neighboring states like England and France. This led to, it had the effect of unusually premature urban environments given economic conditions, 
universities, which led to the codification of law, higher taxes, higher taxes through representative institutions in the Middle Ages, and much more that strengthened the monarchies of France and Iberia in particular by weakening the concept of the empire and emperor, which had the unexpected effect of leading to the weakening of papal authority by the Avignon captivity. Headline, papally strengthened France steals Pope. Oh, dear. And the schisms, the two popes, three popes, who's counting, and allowing for some extraordinarily weak popes in the 16th century, which led to the Reformation, etc., etc., now, this analysis, I realize, puts control over sex and money at the root of all things. Really, that's what they've boiled it down to in the most sophisticated of ways, sex and wealth. This podcast season is not about the big problem, though, of course, we touch on it frequently as Britain is surely in the Western European context. This season is about the little problem, which is, quote, why is it? Britain took the leadership in the movement that turned the European Industrial Enlightenment into lasting economic prosperity, unquote. In my framing, not Mokir's, this is the real great question of history. Quote, the importance of the little question is hardly marginal. By the mid-19th century, Britain had become the workshop of the world, the unquestioned technological leader, a source of economic and political power that was instrumental to the Pax Britannica that consolidated the British Empire, that created the Victorian Age that was, in retrospect, the true golden age of Great Britain. It was much on the minds of contemporaries. Concerned Frenchmen of the time regarded British leadership as a reversal of the normal order of things, which they felt was French leadership. Economic success led to a smugness and self-congratulatory mood in Victorian Britain that took many decades to fade." Unquote. And yeah, that smugness is a major failure mode of Whig history, even though it was accurate. And let me say a bit more. Uh, this is a notion, too, from Adam Tews. Britain, by the end of the Victorian era, had a highly productive service sector, also a new thing. So when World War I started, Germany had difficulties they could not imagine. Their heavy industry had caught up to Britain and even exceeded it in terms of tons of steel and things like that. But they still had a large agricultural sector with low productivity compared to Britain's service sector. This problem still existed in World War II, but now is not the time to discuss that. Hit me up at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want. A nice bit of conditional logic coming, quote, If the basic premise that the Industrial Revolution was the outgrowth of the social and intellectual foundations laid by the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution is correct, it was a European and not a British phenomenon. In that sense, the big question and the little question are impossible to separate. Britain's leadership by itself was probably not essential. Unquote. So this asks if Britain pulled Europe along, kicking and screaming, or if Britain and Europe were driven by the same forces with the continent just needing the French Revolution and Napoleon and 1848 and World War I to wipe away the sort of scummy political layer they had on top of their societies. I have a definite opinion, but it's only that, an opinion. Uh, we can set aside this question and ask, quote, 
what was special about Britain to account for the unique role it played as the cradle of industrial capitalism and the prosperity of the 19th century, unquote. So that's what we're doing. Mokir takes a look at the British economy of 1700, much as how Landis takes a close look at 1760. First, Britain's general prosperity. There's per capita income of $1,405 per year using 1990 prices. As a pure number, it's kind of meaningless for reasons I'll discuss another time, but for comparison, we can see that the British are still behind the Dutch and are like 50% better off than the French, and even more than that, the Germans. And this is mainly expressed in there being more middle class, middling sorts is the term of the time, than France or Germany. The poor are all sort of equally poor at bare subsistence, quote, Knowledgeable contemporaries were amazed at how rich England was, how high its wages, how extensive, and how sophisticated its markets, unquote. We had considerable discussion of this during the Glorious Revolution episodes. Stephen Pincus drove home that point over and over, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But it is worth mentioning that the agricultural workforce was only 30% of the population, which compared to places like Spain and Russia was over two-thirds working in agriculture. Uh, this, you may remember from the Agricultural Revolution arc, is because English agricultural production was 80% higher. Remember I said that the only thing you need to remember from the Agricultural Revolution arc is that 80%. The Dutch and Flemish and Danes were roughly equivalent to the English in this way. This means that 70% of the workforce was engaged in higher marginally productive work than agriculture. By itself, this sectorial difference would account for England's greater income. Statements like this are how economists appear to introduce tautological arguments into history. 32% of the workforce agriculture, 28% were artisans or merchants, and this group, along with the yeoman farmers, make up a large, middling sort of population, which is arguably half the country, and a source of middle-class consumer demand. Now, people are drinking tea and coffee, sweetening with sugar, smoking pipes, spicing their meat, eating from ceramic plates, dressing in nicer clothes. People are working harder than ever to generate cash, which allows them to buy more consumer goods and have the appearance of successful people who are not one of the poor. Another aspect of the gemstone here is status. This is very important. Whether or not you agree that status games are still as important as Robin Hansen says they are, you can't ignore their importance in 1700. We took a look at the obsession over status in France during the 18th century. In England, it was important to not be poor for many reasons of self-regard. It affected marriage prospects very directly. In civil matters, it's much better to be one of those who pay fines instead of one of those who are whipped. Remember, it was not written into law that you don't whip the middling sorts for offenses, but in practice, the middling sort paid fines and the poor were whipped. And of course, on the continent, capital punishment for the poor was extremely common, far, far less so in England. And, of course, no one wants to be subject to whipping or capital punishment simply because of the whim or decision of the squire, who's also the local judge. JP in England, in France, you run the manorial court. It's quite natural that status will be considered vital in societies like that, whatever you believe about how much it is or is not biologically evolved. So status culturally is involved in the soothing of anxiety 
it reaches further than merely what you wear and what graces your table. One way to express status is what you're interested in and or what you pretend to take an interest in. This will be important in a future episode because in Britain, during the 18th century, you could claim higher status by being interested in science, attending lectures, talking about the latest treatises and discoveries. Mokier makes an interesting point that quantitative research has shown that all these new consumer goods were trickling down to the poor in the 18th century, similar to what we see in Emma Griffin's first-hand accounts. It's just the bottom 20% or so paupers and part-time rural laborers that are not participating when it comes to England at some level in this new consumer society. Remember, many of the agricultural poor are getting luxuries like good clothes and good food from the charity of their betters, sometimes resenting it, but evidently making them better off than continentals. All the travelers' accounts corroborate this too, and I'll give you just one since we've covered this before. A Swiss traveler coming to England after going on and on about how much the British eat meat and dairy, quote, the British lower classes are unusually well-dressed, wearing good cloth and linen. The poorest individuals never go with naked feet, even the English peasants are comfortably off, they are well-fed and well-dressed, unquote. And along with that, life expectancy at birth had reached 37 by 1700, though Clark says only 35, whereas in France it was 28 and Russia and Spain a bit lower. Infant mortality are just eye-popping and tragic. England had infant mortality of 190 per thousand. I'll give you a second to digest the enormity of 190 per thousand. In France, it was 280 per thousand. And a last point about grim death is that the famines and epidemics that were such a great part of British history had stopped. There were no more plagues after the Great Plague in London that killed 20% of the inhabitants in 1665. Smallpox and measles would curse families, but no longer would a village be wiped out. In almost the entirety of the rest of the world, famine and plague would remain major factors in repressing population growth until Western technology and public health practices reached them. Though Japan does stand out for being very successful at applying quarantine practices. The rest of the world, not so much. And famine, too. Uh, Britain would see surges in mortality when harvests were bad. But it mainly just meant temporarily higher prices because food could be imported. Events like the mass famine in France in 1709, 1710, it's the walking dead but real life, had already stopped in Britain. Well described by Daniel Defoe and David Hume, indicates a more equal distribution of income in Britain. Uh, less unequal would also be a good formulation. This is important. In, in practical terms, quite apart from any moral attitude you might want to take, because it meant a society with more skilled artisans and a trading infrastructure, which is what a modern economy requires. If you think about Europe east of the Elbe with, quote, a mass of poor peasant and laborers whose efforts sustained a small group of leisurely and wealthy aristocratic drones, were less amenable to economic development than more equitable economies, unquote. One reason for the larger middle class was better gains from trade and the operation of markets. If it isn't obvious to you why the creation of cities creates wealth, 
It's because you get more specialization of labor and efficient deployment of resources. Mokir distinguished three levels of gains from trade, local, national, international. First, locally, you, you buy bread from the baker instead of needing to make it yourself. Uh, shoes from the cobbler. Uh, thatcher fixes your roof. You use cash earned from your own labor to more efficiently get the goods and services you need than doing it for yourself. England is gaining because by 1700, it is doing more of this than what happens on the continent. Second is the national level. More and more goods are being produced in areas with regional skills and specializations, like Birmingham is making metalware, like buckles and guns. Sheffield is making flatware, and sure enough, crucible steel. Staffordshire is making a lot of the pottery. Wales and Newcastle supplying coal. Silk from Spitalfields. And these goods were shipped and traded all over the country despite awful roads, which of course were getting better. One gigantic advantage Britain had was no internal trade barriers. France and Germany and Iberia were cursed with them. So it was later a key priority for improvers in those areas to copy this British advantage. So Britain had a single national market, essentially the single largest market. They could get the full benefits of specialization in knowledge and skills this way and also benefits of scale. The third level is international trade, of which there was much more. We discussed how the Republic and Commonwealth, after chopping off Charles I's head, was able to make shipping far safer and cheaper by suppressing piracy and having a fairly honest court system, at least compared to the early stewards. And, of course, there are many goods now available from far away. Wine, cod, sugar, tobacco, coffee, tea, rice, cotton... And, of course, timber and grain from the Baltic. The timber was vital for shipbuilding. Uh, hemp was vital for operating the ships. And the grain, anytime there was a bad harvest. Also, the best bar iron came from Sweden. Right? Norway's curse was that the most useful iron ore of the 1940s was railed to Narvik and shipped through Norwegian coastal waters to Germany. Now, that's a digression, but the best bar iron or wrought iron, which is iron with super low carbon and other impurities, did come from Sweden in 1700. Uh, British iron was just fine for most purposes until later in the century when processes like puddling and rolling invented by Henry Court in 1785 would allow Britain to make the highest quality of iron. This isn't really globalization yet. Too many interruptions and disruptions for the daily necessities of life to be fully traded. Seems like all globalized systems run into this issue eventually. And yet another source of economic gains more consistently realized in Britain than on the continent. And contemporaries realized their gains from trade. Now here's one from 1728. Quote, trade is so noble a master that it is willing to entertain all mankind in its service. All the happiness and glory of England depend upon the encouragement and good management of trade and navigation, unquote. Though there was a tendency of the people specialized in writing about trade to be mercantilists, who mainly understood the value of trade as the way Britain acquired gold and silver, since after all you need those things to have money and you need money, so you have to trade. And there had already been many who understood that market transactions are normally beneficial to both, both people involved in the transaction. You and the baker each benefit every time you buy a loaf. 
It wasn't blindingly obvious to everyone that international trade worked the same way. David Ricardo didn't make it blindingly obvious until 1817. We'll see Napoleon allowing some trade with Britain because he thinks it hurts England while helping himself, showing how even a genius can be very wrong. During wartime, Britain had a failed harvest and was allowed to buy grain in European markets because Napoleon believed it was impoverishing Britain to make it pay gold for grain to avoid famine. Mokir then makes a really good point about international trade at the time. The gains they got are not just from new places to sell stuff that you make and places to buy stuff you can't make yourself. You also get ideas. Chinese porcelain showed the British that there was a better way to do things. How? We don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. Same for Japanese lacquered wood products. Um, Indian calicos inspired the idea that there was a better way to make cotton cloth. Remember, the English, before their inventions, could not make cotton cloth the quality of an Indian muslin. Economists call this exposure to new ideas and ways of doing things by showing what foreigners could do exposure effects. Exposure effects inspire innovation and imitation, if you're open to it, and it's allowed. England was always fine with it, and you could find quotes showing the English were proud of their ability to make use of foreign inventions. So, one problem with foreign trade, it just inevitably gets mixed up with politics and war. Britain's great advantage was to not have that same infliction of politics upon internal trade. Mokir lists some of the ways in which politics and restrictions on trade changed Britain. 1. The 1713 tariff on French wine made it so expensive that the country became a nation of ale and whiskey drinkers. 2. The Muthian Treaty favoring Portugal over France opened Britain to the joys of port wine. 3. The Calico Act of 1721 ended up greatly stimulating the British cotton industry. 4. The merchant interest stimulated the growth and power of the Royal Navy and the associated industries. Not merely iron for cannons, but math for navigation. And it was Iron Mad Wilkinson's development of a tool to bore iron cannons that finally created a tool precise enough to bore cylinders for Watt's separate condenser. 5. Mokir wants to regard these as economically wasteful with technological spillover effects that were world-changing. But you have to ask about these lucky accidents. They created demand for innovation in key areas. Unless you want to assert that the English were so inventive, they would still have invented all those things or other things just as well. Without the demand artificially created by these restrictions, these accidents... We're wading into the deep waters of historical contingency here. So next we want to talk about the negative feedback loops that normally held back economies. But this episode is long enough, so let's let's do it next time. And I'm still trying to get ahead on episodes before taking a long series of vacations, so we'll skip conversations with Cami to save production time. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me.
at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. 